Well, what a great song with passion declaring belief in, in a book. And, and yet, as they sang that song, you might say it was a great song, it was an interesting song, but, I mean, come on. You really believe in Adam and Eve? You really believe in, in Isaiah or whatever those other people are? I don't even know. I mean, for many people, the idea of believing the Bible um, is actually reliable. And maybe it's got some good stories in it. Maybe it's got some good analogies in it, some life lessons. But to believe that it's the Word of God... That seems incredibly like intellectual suicide. That seems like very, very naive. In fact, I went to uh, lunch recently with a guy here in our, in our city who wrote a blog. He's uh, pretty well known. He wrote a blog about how he respected people who believe, especially since belief is the absence of facts. And he was actually being very respectful. He was saying that he respected people who could believe with absence of facts, but he was more of a scientist, more of an agnostic, and he couldn't believe that kind of stuff, this kind of stuff, because he was more of a facts guy. So I invited him to lunch. We had a great conversation over lunch. And I said, well, I'm actually more of a scientist myself. I'm a historian. I'm a philosopher. And one of the reasons I believe in the Bible is because it's backed up by the facts. He said, oh, come on. He said, the Bible's more like a telephone game. You know, who knows what happened originally and what version we have and how the changes all occurred. I said, well, you know, there's a lot of scientists. I mentioned one last week with uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who was a brilliant mathematician. And he would say the mathematical evidence of the calculations made in the Old Testament to the New Testament, the mathematical probability showed that it was true. I mentioned some archaeological evidence. I mentioned Johann Kepler, who invented astronomy, and how he believed that this was true. I mentioned uh, Louis Pasteur, the father of modern biology, who was also a believer in the Bible as a scientist. He said, man, I can't put you in a box. He said, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who thinks that faith is based on facts and that science and history backs us up. We, we ought to engage more. See, for him, to believe was to be naive. What I was saying is, no, to believe is to not be believe, is not be naive. I mean, if you believe in something that's not true, that doesn't make it true. But if something is true, it doesn't matter if you have a little belief or a lot of belief, it'll work. So the question is not what do you believe, the question is what is true. And I specifically today want to talk about whether or not the Bible has all kinds of errors or mistakes in it, and is it naive to think that what we hold in our hand is the Bible is actually remotely close to what was originally inscribed or written down. Now, to do that, we're not going to look at faith. We're going to look at facts. As we examine these facts, we're going to look at two specifically with lots of details underneath them. We're going to look at these facts. And if these facts are true, then you can find that this book, this is an Old Testament Torah I'll talk about in just a moment, is a reliable, relevant roadmap for your life. And Jesus saw it that way. So I'm going to start with Jesus before we get into the facts. Jesus was Jewish. He was a rabbi. He would have opened scrolls like this in synagogues all the time from very young age, learning and memorizing parts. Sometimes even a, a rabbi with authority, which he was called, is someone who would actually memorize the entire Bible. Now, this is actually this scroll. You read from right to left. Your right to left is the book of Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's called the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Now, in those days... The sacredness for the scriptures and for God was so much, you would often cover your head as a way in reverence and coming to God. And because of what was said in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, was to keep God's word on your forehead, that phylacteries were often used. And these phylacteries are a way of reminding yourself to think about what God said. Think about the fact that God had a word for you. So you would come to worship or you would come to the scriptures with a deep sense of reverence that the God of the universe wanted to interact with you. Now Jesus... Uh, 
when he came on the scene, many people were wearing phylacteries, but it had moved from something that really helped you meditate on God to what often happens with religion. It became a way of being showy, a way of being braggadocious. So folks would have long phylacteries, and the longer your phylacteries, the more spiritual you were. (laughs) And so, so you'd have these big old boxes because you were really spiritual, and you have these big old phylacteries, and you'd come into the town square, and people would say, oh, wow, look how spiritual he is. He's got a big box on his head. And Jesus, as a rabbi, was very harsh on the religious community. Not because he wasn't Jewish, but because instead of these being symbols that drew you to God, they became ways of showing off. They became signs of hypocrisy, signs of uh, a religious system that was about rules and about ritual rather than being about a relationship with God. But Jesus, as a rabbi in that century, he found that the Bible is incredibly relevant. And whenever he is teaching, he is always teaching in reference to the Old Testament. So, like, here's an idea of relevance. One of his famous passages is on how to forgive. Peter comes to him one day and says, how often should I forgive somebody? Seven times? He says, well, no, actually not seven times, but 70 times seven. Again, this is very practical. It's hard to forgive somebody once. It's hard to forgive them twice. Seven times? Peter even said, hey, I'll do it seven times. God's going to be impressed. Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And the reason God wants you to forgive somebody 70 times 7 is because he's willing to forgive you 70 times 7. So while I was in Israel, the rabbi I was with said, where do you think Jesus got the idea of 70 times 7? I said, he made it up. He's a brilliant teacher. He said, nope. He's always teaching from the Old Testament. I said, well, I've never heard the number 70 times 7 ever used in the Bible. I've been studying it for 20 years. I said, maybe it's in you know, Habakkuk or something. He goes, no, no, it's in Genesis I said, no way. Genesis chapter 4. Here's the reference. Then Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, he was the first polygamist, and the Bible speaks against polygamy, but also tells you people who didn't obey. Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. Oh, hear me roar. I have killed a man for just wounding me. Even a young man for hurting me. If Cain was avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy. Sevenfold. So if you ask the Jewish community in Jesus' day, who's the most evil person in the Bible? They'd say Lamech. If you just bumped into him, he'd kill you. Cain, who killed his brother, he, he didn't want to just be avenged like Cain was. He wanted to be avenged seven times whatever happened to him. More than that, he wanted to be avenged 70 times seven. To which Jesus says, the most evil man you've ever known in the Bible was Lamech. And I want the followers of me to be as forgiving as Lamech was evil. Oh, wow, that's... Wow, how do I do that? It was very, very relevant teaching from the Old Testament and how it applied to your life. Secondly, Jesus said that in his day, the Bible was very, very reliable, that you could trust that what was written down was actually what Moses wrote down. He says it this way. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. You know, things change in the heavens, things change on the earth, but by no means will my words pass away. Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. Now, let me tell you what a jot and a tittle is. So there's a, a picture up there, although later on we'll give you a chance to come up here and see it. This is an actual Torah scroll, 600 years old. It's composed of 37 uh, pieces of, of cowhide. This was actually taken by the Nazis from the Jewish people in Romania. 
um, in the Polish area as well. And then um, it was actually taken later by the communists, and it was just returned to, to Israel in the 1990s. A friend of mine who was a skeptic, did not believe in the Bible, studied this years ago, and came to the conclusion from the facts it was reliable, and he's loaning it to us for the weekend. His name's Josh McDowell. So we'll give you a chance to look at that later. But here's what a jot is. A jot, go back one slide. A jot are like little commas hanging in the air. So you see there's lots and lots of jots, and you'll see them all over the place. So Jesus is saying, even the remote detailed dots and commas, the jots, are accurate and you can trust in it. Then he also says a tittle. Now what's a tittle? A tittle is a decoration. It doesn't even change the meaning of a text. It's like a little crown molding that you put. Literally, it's a crown you put on the top of letters. These are Hebrew letters. And see the little crown at the top? Those are tittles. So Jesus is saying the jots and the tittles, the very details will come to pass. You can count on what God said in this book, even though everything else on earth and heaven change. Well, that's a pretty bold claim. And you might say, well, that's a rabbi just supposed to say, right? I mean, as they studied their whole life. Are there facts to back up Jesus' claim? third thing is Jesus found the Bible to be a, a very reliable roadmap in his life. I mean, he used the Bible in the most tricky of circumstances. He'd be up against lawyers given this very complicated uh, situation of trying to entrap him. He'd be around politicians. He was around the smartest scholars of his day. He grew up in an area of Capernaum where they trained scholars and philosophers. So Jesus was not some guy from the backwoods. He was dealing with the Oxford and, and Yale and Princeton of his day, and he was incredibly compelling in the arguments he made. And he used the Bible as a roadmap for some very delicate, tricky, wise, even snarky at times, comebacks. So to give you an idea in English how this might work, let me quote some movies and see how you know the context of the movie. So if I say from The Godfather, I'm going to make him an offer that he, what, can't refuse, right? So you know the context. So if I tell you that I talked to a guy last week and I made him an offer he can't refuse, you know that's not necessarily a good thing. There might be a dead horse head in his bed tomorrow, right? You know the context actually gives a deeper meaning to what I say. Okay, here's another one. If I quote Poor Richard's Almanac with Ben Franklin. Visitors, like fish, smell or stink after three days. Which is saying, don't stay too long at somebody's house. So if you're hanging at my house and it's been four days, and I walk up to you and say, you know, I was reading some Ben Franklin and I thought of you. Or, I was reading Poor Richard's Almanac and you came to mind. You, you, if you knew that book, you'd know I just sort of said, <clears throat> time to move on. Okay, here's another one from Monty Python. Your mother was a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. All right, there's six of us who actually watched that movie. That's great. So if I told you that, uh, you know, when I think of you, I think of the French guard from Monty Python, you would know that there's an insult coming. Well, in the same way, Jesus was a master at quoting the Old Testament little phrases that his audience would know the greater context. So in Luke, he is presenting himself as the coming Messiah. The Bible had predicted hundreds of years in advance that the Messiah would come and the people would cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. So he's coming into Jerusalem on, on the at triumphal entry and for a Jewish fast, uh, feast of Passover. And he's drawing up near the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. A clear indication that they saw him as claiming to be the Messiah, and he was accepting their claim to be the one predicted in the Old Testament. 
To which the Pharisees, the experts in the law, get mad and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be saying this. You're claiming to be God. You're claiming to be the one that was written down hundreds of years ago. This is blasphemy. To which Jesus says, Well, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. That was sort of an obscure, okay, well, he didn't really answer their question. He didn't really, he just said, if they don't say something, the stones will. And we said, well, that's weird. And then the Pharisees get really ticked off, really mad. Like, why are you so mad? He just said the stones are going to cry out. Just like a little idiom. Because they know the context. Jesus is not quoting some obscure phrase. He's quoting from the book of Habakkuk, from their Old Testament Bible. And here's the context when you zoom out. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You, and again, Habakkuk was addressing the leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day. You leaders give shameful counsel to your house. You cut off many people. You sin against your own soul. Therefore, the stones have to cry out from the wall. So he knew, that the rabbis knew, that Jesus was quoting a passage that said, because the leaders are so corrupt and so hypocritical, because religion has become so amok, that God has had to call the stones to give out the truth because the leaders are so bad. And so they're sitting there going, I think he just quoted the Godfather. He didn't just say the stones are going to crowd. He said, we're corrupt, we're hypocrites, we covet, we're using our religious position to make money, not to actually teach people about God, because we've done such a bad job... The people are recognizing what we didn't teach them. So very, very relevant how Jesus used this. Now, those are Jesus' words. And in one sense, these facts help me in my belief that I'm about to present. But I also go with, I know that there's archaeological evidence for Jesus raised from the dead. And I always say, if a guy's raised from the dead, I'll believe whatever he believes. So if that's an actual fact... I'm going to go with what he says. So what Jesus says means a lot to me, and I'm going to go with what he says even if I didn't have these facts. But for many of you, you're like, well, I don't believe that. And these facts would be helpful. So the fact number two is not how Jesus used it, but it said the Bible is much more like Sudoku than it is like the telephone game. And what do I mean by that? I think one of the most common misconceptions about the Bible that you hear, I heard it at lunch recently, is, well, we can't trust the Bible we have because it's like the telephone game. Somebody said something to somebody and it got copied and there was a mistake and it got changed and things got errors. And over time, who knows what really happened? I think that's a very common belief amongst unconvinced folks. And maybe even if you're a, a follower of Christ, you'd say, yeah, but I don't take the Bible seriously because smart people wouldn't take the Bible seriously. Because, and here's the urban legend, the Bible's like the telephone game. I want to try and help you through the facts, show you that you should never think that or say that again. Now, you can still say, I don't believe the Bible because I don't like what it says, or I don't like the miracles, but the one thing you won't be able to say after today is that the Bible is like the telephone game. Because no piece of literature has gone to detail to make sure that it's reliable in copying more than the Bible. Like, not even close. Now, if you, you play Sudoku, you'll know that there's lots of ways to verify whether or not it's true. Like, all nine numbers have to appear in each one of the squares. So each square, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all nine have to appear here. Nine have to be left or right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They also have to be up and down. So there's lots of ways to check to see whether or not your Sudoku is, is solved correctly. You can check it within the box, check it up and down, and check it left or right. The same is true in the copying process with the Bible. So, I'll tell you where it begins. Before you could copy the scriptures, you first had to have a certified scribe. And you had to have the right material. 
So the certified material is that each one of the pieces of material was made out of cowhide, 37 here, and that animal could not have died. You couldn't have killed an animal to make a scroll. That wouldn't be kosher. But if it died of natural causes or you're, it was died for some other reason, you could then take the hide, scrape it off, take the hair off. You'd use cow dung, actually, or dog dung, rather, because it made the hairs come off easier. So, you know, be careful. But that was kosher, believe it or not, because it made it so that you could inscribe the words on it. But you could not copy a scroll off any old piece. Hey, I found this. Let's copy it. You could not copy a scroll unless you had a certified scroll that the rabbis had checked out and had made sure that it had been copied in the same way that what I'm going to describe was copied. So you had to have the right material. You had to have the right scroll. Then not anybody could copy. You had to be a certified scribe. What do I mean by certified scribe? Well, many times you spent your whole life training for this job. It wasn't like, when, hey, I think I'm going to write the Bible today. Your grandfather usually was a scribe. He taught the principles to your father who taught them to you. You spent your whole life, this was a holy calling. You dreamed of the day that you might be certified and allowed to do this with your life. Very, very holy process, not flippant. In order to even begin the process as a scribe, you had to personally memorize 4,000 rules and laws of how this thing should be copied so that no mistakes came in. You start seeing the Sudoku? The scribe, the material, the source document who it was, how many laws to make sure mistakes didn't come in, and we've just begun. Now, as it was being copied, as I said, this is Genesis over here, and this is um, Deuteronomy over here. When you began to copy, you would have your scroll on one side, the one that was certified that you're going to copy off of. As I mentioned, this is 600 years old, and this was copied off one that was 1,000 years old. So here before us is a real scroll that jumps us back 1,600 years, and it was only copied once. What would happen is that you as a scribe would stand there with your goose feather and your ink. There would be a a scribe over your right shoulder and your left shoulder. And you would go letter by letter, not word by word. And you couldn't do anything from memory. So you couldn't, for example, say like the word scribe up there. I couldn't say scribe, scribe. That was from memory. Now, what would happen is you would sing it, or the person to your right would sing it, scribe, S. And you would write S. The guy over your shoulder would double-check, S. Next, C, C, C. Letter by letter, nothing from memory, checked by three different people why it was going down within a grid system. And this is the process by which it would take you three years to do the first five books of the Bible. And in order to put it into a grid like you'd see in Sudoku, you literally would have a grid system created. So there would be holes poked, and most of them are covered up because of the muscles that are used to tie these things together. But underneath each of the seams, we'll see little dots. You'll see it up on the screen. Little dots were poked with glass or wood. Couldn't use metal because it was an instrument of war and it was a sacred document. And then you would literally line the paper. So you'll see it looks a lot like 8.5 by 11 paper you might have. It took three months just to line the paper, but they wanted to make sure the grid was perfect so that they could count all the letters up and down, left and right, to make sure there were no mistakes. The grid made it easier to read, and it made it easier to copy. And when you come up here later, you get a chance to see the dots, see the grid. You will not believe that this was done by human hands. It looks like a laser printer did it. Also, as you're inscribing it, none of the letters are allowed to touch. At any time, if the letters touch... You can't certify the scroll. 
So what would happen is that the letters are hung down from the lines. If you look at these, you might say, Chad, this is upside down. It's not. It's facing you. So from here, it's correct. The letters hang downward. And they always end on the grid. So you see, as they hang downward on the right, you'll see that they hang downward and that they always go from the left, uh, from the right to the left, and they end at the same space. Now, they don't hyphenate words because they didn't want any mistakes to come in by hyphenating. So they will expand a word. Look at the size of these letters. They will expand a word to fill the entire line so they don't have to hyphenate. Or other times, they will tighten a word so it fits up to the grid. But notice again, they never touch each other. Because if any one letter touched another letter, they thought a mistake might come in in the future, so they would not certify the scroll until all those were fixed. Except for the name of God. The name of God was so sacred to the scribes that if at any time in your two and a half, three years of working on the scroll, if you wrote the name of God and yet the letters of God smudged, the whole scroll was out and you had to start over. So before they wrote the name of God, they would wipe off the ink and they would, with a goose feather, write the name of God sacredly and holy because that's how they treated this document. Now they use very special ink. The ink comes from Aleppo, comes from an oak tree that is stung by a wasp of all things. So when an oak tree is stung by a wasp, it forms these pods um, called Aleppo. And inside these pods is some of the best ink. And they found that by mixing some soot with it, they could make it darker. Or in this case, this Romanian scroll, it's more dark brown because they didn't mix as much soot in. They also found that by using only one day, they only made one day of ink, because with one day of ink, it would last longer. It would last centuries, I mean, 600 years here. So they really experimented with the best way to get the ink that would last the longest period of time as they created it. All right, so they put all this together. And here again, fact after fact, years after years of putting this together. Then you'd think, well, that's pretty good. Now it's just begun. It's still not certified. So now they hire the counters. And this has taken three years now. There will be three passes with multiple scribes who are professional counters. They have been trained their entire life and father and grandfather many times to count the letters in the grid. So you would take one page of the scroll you're copying off of and go piece by piece, count the letters from top to bottom. Count the one on the new one, the same. Count from left to right, how many? Count from left to right, same. Line by line, make sure all the letters were identical. And then the real hard work began. After you went page by page, one of the counters would begin on the far right side, you're right, in Genesis, another one would start on the far left side in Deuteronomy, and they would begin to count the letters one by one from each side of the scroll because they knew the middle letter in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 42. There are 304,805 letters in the Torah, and they knew exactly what the 152,403rd letter was. So they would count from the left to the right, and they would get to 152,401, 402, 403. And they're waiting for the other guy. He's a little slower because he messed up somewhere around 50,000 had to start over. <laughs> so he's catching back up, and he gets to 152,402, and it's off by a letter. Can't certify the scribe, the scroll yet. So they would spend weeks, months going back over the entire thing to find what was the letter that was a mistake, and they'd start all over again. And once it had been certified three times, it counted on the letters, you'd think they'd then be ready to say it was okay. Nope. Now they had to count the words. So they'd start over from the beginning. They knew exactly how many words were in the scroll. 
There were 79,847 words in the Torah, and the middle word appears in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 33. You'll also notice the way they inscribed it, they wanted to show you what the poetry looked like. So many sections, you'll see, like here on the left, the poetry is built in. This might have been like the Song of the Sea in Exodus. There's a section that looks just like that right here in the middle. When you come up later, you can see it. So this was to help you get the rhythm, help you to interpret it correctly, help you to reflect on phrases in a certain way. But again, they would begin counting. All right, 39,923. Then the 24th word had to be the word in Leviticus 13.33, and the other person would start in the other end and add their way all the way back down. And then, after three years of copying under those rules, under three years of calculation of each page, under all the ways in which you count the middle letter and the middle word, and after it got certified three times by professional counters, then they would say, this is a trustworthy copy. Not the telephone game. Again, there's lots of reasons you may reject the Bible. You might not like what it says. It may be weird to have supernatural things in there. I'm not covering all that stuff today. But here's the one thing you can't say and have any intellectual firepower behind it. There's never been a document ever written in human history that's gone through this level of detail for certification. Never. And I challenge you to find one. The sacredness, the holy calling to it. We can know today that what we hold in our hand is what was written down. Just here, 1,600 years we jump back with one change. Well, one more jump and we're back before Daniel. So just in three copying processes, we can know that what we're reading in our Bible today is reliable based on the facts. Not based on my opinion, not based on my preference. Based on the facts. But don't take my word for it. Anne Rice, you may know Anne because she wrote a whole bunch of uh, vampire erotica movies. She was a uh, very strong agnostic or atheist even. She would consider herself a, a, a skeptical, modern, unconvinced person about the Bible. And she, uh, if you remember this movie, it, uh, nobody saw it. So probably nobody. It had uh, oh, Tom Cruise in it, uh, Interview with the Vampires, really bad. But um, <laughs> she, but her books you know, were fantastic. She was a, still is a, a national seller. Well, she decided that she was going to investigate the facts to see if the Bible really was as asinine as she had heard and belief in it was as ridiculous as she had heard. So she began to investigate the claims she had espoused and her friends had espoused for years. And here is her conclusion in her book, Christ the Lord. Next slide. Some works, people criticizing the Bible, were no more than assumptions piled on top of assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of very little or no data at all. The whole case for a divine Jesus who stumbled in Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around in liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was the case for it not made, I discovered in the field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. Not my words, it's hers. And she ultimately, from the facts, came to conclude the Bible is true historically and literally, and we can trust in it. Now, C.S. Lewis, I think he was in Oxford, he was an absolute expert in mythology, in ancient documentation, in stories and romances. That was his thing. He was also an agnostic. He would say, belief in the Bible, that song we sang earlier, I mean, talk about naive to believe that the Bible's true. But a friend of his, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, was a strong, uh, committed Catholic who believed in the Bible and Jesus. And he said, why don't you check into the facts? Why don't you read it for yourself? You're an expert in this area. Check it out. So he did. 
He specifically, in this quote I'm going to give you, was referencing the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do we know that what happened in the life of Jesus is a historic, accurate representation versus a story or an allegory or myth? And here's what he, the expert agnostic, said about it. I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends and myths, all my life. I know what they are like. And I know none of them are like the Bible. There are only two possible views of the gospel text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Either the reporting is pretty close to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without any known predecessors or any successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. He's saying what it claims is what it is. And the idea of a, of a fantasy literature that the Bible was written to make it look like it was true, but it wasn't really true, that hadn't even been invented yet. And to think that this thing that had been invented hundreds of years later was suddenly invented by somebody and then it never happened again for hundred years, he said is naive. Josh McDowell, who was loaning us this, he set out and wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and more evidence that demands a verdict, to give facts on why the Bible is true, why Jesus is who he says he is. So if you're exploring faith, and you've heard somebody, I just want to throw my TV across the room sometimes, and we'll get some pastor or priest or somebody, and they'll say, well, faith is the absence of evidence, right? That's what faith's all about. That's true, it really is. No, that's, that's stupidity is what that is. So if you have been frustrated by that, you've come to the right place. There are facts to back up the truths, and you can think your way into belief in God and Christ in the Bible. The facts are here. To believe is not to be naive. And here's what I encourage you to do. I would encourage you to just for the next seven days... Read one page of the Bible. Just read one page for the next seven days. And where should you get started? Well, the gospel texts are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can start in the book of John, but I actually find the book of Mark is really good. The book of Mark is written faster. It's quicker. He's like a magazine-style writer, so it's Jesus is always running here and running there. But the book of Mark, if you just want to say, I want to I figure out if this is true, I'd encourage you to just the next seven days read one page. I mean, it's like four paragraphs, sometimes ten. And just say, God, if this is true, help me. God, I need comfort. I don't know if you can provide comfort. Show me. God, I'm seeking truth. And if you were the source of truth, reveal it to me. And you're going to find a Jesus that is not like the caricatures you've heard. It's not like a lot of the religiosity or the hypocrites on TV or in history. You're going to find a Jewish Jesus, the rabbi you least expected but always wanted, page by page. You know, I say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I'm going to read it. I read stuff all the time I don't believe. Don't let that be an obstacle. Read it to say, hey, this thing shaped Western civilization. An educated people, person ought to at least know what this is in. Or maybe you're going to look forward to find some good objections to bring back. One page a day for seven days and just see if God might begin to work in your heart. And what you're going to do is you're going to treasure a treasure that people have risked their life for. I mean, whatever's in this document, people have risked their lives for. Why did the Nazis want to capture this thing? Why did the communists hide this thing? Why did people hide it and risk their life? Because what was in this book was so important. People wanted to make sure you had access to it. And yet many of us have it sitting on our phones and we haven't read it in months or years. We've got a dusty one. <laughs> the old family Bible. I think we opened it the other day. People risked their life so that this message could come to you. Wouldn't it be worth at least sort of cracking it open to find out what they risked their life for? I mean, if you take this document and the one it was copied from, it has survived persecution in medieval times, the Renaissance persecution, it has survived Hitler, it has survived the Holocaust. 
This should have been burned, this particular document, but it didn't. At least treasure a treasure that others risk their life for. There must be something here worth looking at. I'd like you to hear a, sort of a real-time story of someone who's been through this journey here at our church. So if you would uh, welcome with me my friend Jill. Jill, come on up. Let's hear a little bit of what you guys have been doing in your life. Welcome. Well, Jill, tell me a little bit about, uh, you saw the scroll a few months ago when uh, Josh McDowell was here at our first service. Mm -hmm. And what was your response to his, our version of what I just did? I got chills up my arms, my back and my neck, because I was very familiar with the Torah. Um, I was Jewish for a long time. And uh, to have one so close that I could see it like that was amazing. And um, it reminded me of my Jewish days with my former stepdaughters who were six and seven at the time. And they taught me the Hebrew prayers that I needed to know in order to convert to Reform Judaism. And they taught them to me phonetically because I couldn't read Hebrew. Um, They taught them to me one syllable at a time. And the first one that I learned was the Shema, which you talked about. The Shema is the watchword of Israel, and it's the little itty-bitty scroll inside each of these mezuzahs, which goes on the doorpost of a Jewish person's house, um, according to God's commandment in the book of Deuteronomy, which you pointed out is at Mm -hmm. the end of the scroll down there. And the Shema is, I brought my cheat sheet because I can remember the Hebrew, but I can't remember the English always, so... (laughs) Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Le'olam Vo'ed. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. That's what's inside the mezuzah. And then they taught me the prayer that I had to know um, to usher in the Sabbath every Friday night. You would set up your candles, you would light the candles, you would not blow out the match, you would set it on something that wouldn't burn and it would go out by itself. And you would ask the, the Sabbath to come in three times and recite, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam Asher Kedishanu V'mitzvah V'tivanu Lahadlikner Shel Shabbat, which is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to kindle the light of the Holy Sabbath. So what brought you to Judaism? So you, you were relatively irreligious, and what had you converted into Judaism as a religion? Well, I was brought up in a family that was Episcopalian. I was um, baptized as an infant, as an Episcopalian, but my dad was a surgeon, and we didn't go to church. He worked around the clock pretty much 24-7, saving people's lives. Sunday morning was the only morning he slept in. Mm. And it was 20 minutes from where we lived in Waverly all the way up to Chillicothe, where the Episcopal Church was. And that apparently was too far to travel, so we didn't go. So when I went to church, I had my mom take me into town, and I would go to my friend's church, like the Methodist Church in Waverly, or I would go to really, really rural churches, that were where my babysitters went. And so I had a broad background, but while I remember learning the Lord's Prayer as a little kid, there wasn't a whole lot of 
religiosity that went on in our house. Okay, so then, but, so you, how do you get from there to, uh, to converting to Judaism? Then? Well, I met my first husband um, working for Ohio State University Hospitals, and he was Jewish. And I actually fell in love with his little girls, who were three and four at the time. And I converted to Judaism for him, but Judaism spoke to me, and it was a very natural thing. My best friend in college and throughout life was a Jew, and I would go home with Nancy to New York and go to their temple with their family and do Passover with them and a lot of the other holidays. And so when I met my first husband, going to temple every Friday night was a very natural thing. And when we got married, converting to Judaism was natural. But I did it for him. And then I discovered that he was a very abusive spouse. And as the abuse got worse, I sought counseling to remove myself from that domestic violence situation. While I turned my back on the marriage, I never turned my back on the religion because it continued to give me solace and comfort. And rather than just being like ritual, I mean, you felt like in that time of Judaism you shared with me that you're really connecting with God. Something deep was was connecting with you Mm -hmm. in the midst of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So then with that bad experience, um, so you go into the next phase of your, your journey, um, which is what distance from God or, or how or distance from religion or how would you describe no, the next season? No, n- not really, because I carried Judaism with me for the next 12 years. I poured myself into my career and moved from city to city and attended different temples while I was in different cities okay. doing marketing. And then 21 years ago, I moved to Cincinnati. And my third week on the job, I went out on this blind date and met my husband. (laughs) And Kenneth was, um, I discovered very quickly, uh, even though I said I was never, ever getting married again, he has a very nurturing side to him, and his nurturing soul helped heal me. I didn't really start getting over my first marriage until I met him. Hmm. And he was an agnostic. He had been Catholic. Um, his idea of church was communing with God while he was on the water fishing for bass. Hey, that's a great place to commune with God. And that was okay with me. That I understood that. And um, we were happy. He moved along in our marriage uh, running his hair salon and I was doing my marketing work. And we just didn't have a, a heavy-duty... Re- I mean, I still did the prayers. I still... Um, went through Passover and the High Holy Days and all of that, yeah. and Hanukkah. But it wasn't a key component of our marriage. Yeah, so you got a recovering uh, uh, person from Judaism, a recovering Catholic who's now an agnostic. So how'd you end up here? Uh, well, first I told him that when he asked me to marry him, I said, um, we're going to have to find an Our Lady of Eternal Guilt. <laughs> um, then... One day he started disappearing on Wednesday nights, and I said, "Where? what's the deal? Where are you going? And he said, well, Mr. Carl Lindner told me that his sons had started this church, Horizon, and Wednesday nights are when the men get together and study the Bible, so I wanted to do that. And that was okay with me. That was cool. And then one day he invited me to go to church on Sunday, and I'm like, oh, right, whatever, I'll go. And I went, and we sat in the front because Kenneth being the consummate hairdresser that he is, he cannot stand to sit in the back and look at hundreds of very bad haircuts. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So that's why we sit in he's the front. He's in the front. front right there. There yes, he is. He's right, sitting yeah, in the, the front, front right there. Don't turn around, Kenneth. Don't turn around. 
And from that very first time, um, the, at least the first four or five weeks that I went to church, I sat there and sobbed. I cried the entire time. And my friends later thought that I was um, praying. But I was crying. And I was crying because what the minister, what the pastor was saying was reaching me very, very deep, mm. deeply. And he and I both knew that we were home. And we mm. never looked back and we never stopped coming. Of course, every now and then, like the time when he drowned my car in the bottom of the lake on a Sunday, he did go fishing. But other than that, we were always here. <laughs> and, and you decided, over those months of journeying and our friendship over the last 10 years, you, you decided to become a follower of Christ? We did. Um, and to go public with it. I felt that God had been calling to me, that he wanted to love me. It, as, as unlovable as I felt, I learned through Kenneth that I could be loved, that I was lovable, and I knew God loved me, and God was trying to bring me home. And mm. one day we were driving home after the service um, on Sunday, and I looked at Kenneth and said, have you ever thought about being baptized as an adult? And he said, actually, yeah, I have been thinking about that. Mm. And that summer we were baptized, and back then, back in the day, um, we didn't have this wonderful place, and we didn't have a baptismal, so we baptized members in other members' swimming pools, and that summer, Kenneth and I, I were baptized in Mr. Carl Linder and Edith Linder's swimming pool. Yeah. And um, the Linders actually were a very huge part of bringing us back to God. Um, Carl Linder, uh, Kenneth had kind of been an, an external, extended member of that family for over 40 years, and... He and Carl used to have tons of arguments about religion, and Carl never gave up on him. He was very, very patient, and at the right time, he gently brought Kenneth back to God, and it was through Carl and Kenneth that really I came back to God and Christ. And um, so I want to thank, I want to thank God, and I want to thank the entire Lindner family. Mm. And my family here at Horizon for helping us come back home. Mm. And in addition to that, I would like to tell you that through this seven weeks of Jewish Jesus, your explanation of all of the Jewish holidays and mm -hmm. of the Jewish religion has been much more clear and much more understandable than anything any rabbi in any <laughs> temple has ever You may call me Rabbi said. Chad then. You may call me Rabbi. My uh, midrash. Rebbe. <laughs> Rebbe Chad. Well, thank, so you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let, let me pray for you. Sam, give me a hug. You are very lovable. We love you. you. Let me pray for you and then uh, we'll move on. Father, we just thank you for Jill. We thank you for your love for her. We thank you for drawing her. We thank you for that promise that you will repay for the years the locusts have eaten with the pain she's been through. Now we just ask those promises will dwell upon her and your forgiveness and love will be just real in her life, uh, not only in the past but in the future to come. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Jill. Well, as, uh, as we finish up today, there's a great song um, by Peter Frampton called Show Me the Way. It's the God, show me what's really real. So we're going to listen to the song together. And during the song, if you want to come up and look at the scroll, I would just ask you, don't bring your coffee or drinks and don't set anything on it. But other than that, feel free to come up and look at it. And if you don't make it up by the song, that's fine. I'll dismiss everybody, and there'll be plenty of time too. So Dan's going to sing this next song. It's a prayer, really, of saying, God, show me what's true. Feel free at any time to come up and look at the scroll. Thanks.
Well, again, thanks for being here today. Feel free to make your way up and look at the scroll. We appreciate you being here. We'll see you next week for Jewish Jesus, our last part for Father's Day. If you came prepared to give, you can drop it off in the offering box or say hi to some folks in the hearth room. Thanks again.